0: Oh, would you look at that! There's a new episode of the Black on my phone, ready to play right now.
1: A long, long time ago,
0: listening to Black Cast. I don't wanna watch what's on the TV. iTunes app put on the BC. Podcasts on, no talking to me. Listening to Black Cast. Keep up on comics and movies. New phone ring, I answer hoodies. I can't talk, call back if you please. Listen Listening to Black. Don't know what you are missing. Damn, fine show hosted by Christian. He's just dope, no ass. I'm kissing. Listen in the black cast. Put subscribe on this podcast. You won't be the first, but don't you beat last. Listen while you pumping your gas. Listen in the black cast. On this episode, is Jean Grey talking about the things that she say. So distracted, didn't feed Bay. Listen in the black. Met this girl, she smiled in my face. Black cast in to my place. Had one beer, she brought a whole case. Listen in to black cast. Cops knock on the door and listen. Black cast on, they think I'm Christian. Cops ran off, now I ain't trippin'. Listen in to black cast. My point is, listen to this show. Don't need me to tell you it's dope. Rock so hard like Johnny Lithgow. Listen in to black cast. Oh yeah! It's a black cast. It's on the ghost twin TV or whatever. Oh, it's not. Oh, it's on Afterbus TV. That's right. It's that guy Christian. You rock. All right. Several Texas have to go take care of some business. But I'm here to say have a nice
1: day. This is the Blattcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. Hosted by Christian Blatt. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt.
2: Welcome to The Blackcast, and it's a thrill and an honor to start off the show today talking with musician Don McLean, whom is credited with everybody's favorite eight-and-a-half-minute number one single, American Pie, and of course, so many other great songs. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Don. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm uh, happy to be here. Nice to talk to you.
2: Uh, Now, you're uh, originally from uh, New Rochelle, New York. And uh, while I grew up in rural Orange County, New York, and then I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie. Oh, Marist is a
1: very good school.
2: Yeah, one of these things that we were always aware of was uh, Pete Seeger's uh, Clearwater. And uh, as I was reading about you uh you were actually part of the original crew of that and i kind of wanted to yeah. start off talking about oh, yeah. that because that was so important to you know i mean for people that don't know marist college is literally right on the hudson river so it was something we were yeah. very um, cognizant of yeah
1: well marist is a uh the marist brothers i guess they're an order of teaching order i don't know if they're still around but that's the why they call it that and they still have very important polls i noticed for political um Candidates, the, the Marist poll is uh, quoted Iona College is where I went to school, and that was similar to Marist. Uh, it was Irish Christian Brothers uh, taught there. And you know, I was a, um, uh, um, a middle class white boy from um, a middle class white suburb um, of Neurishale, actually, it was Larchmont Woods which was a, a very nice area. And it had a lot of woods around, like 60 acres of woods. And that's what got me started loving, loving the woods and loving nature. And from that point on, I never really wanted to live uh, in the city and didn't want to work in the city. It changed my whole life, basically. I always had property, and now I have 175 acres in Maine. Um, where I would get away from people and be be in the forest with nature. And this is an interesting thing, because in getting to know Pete Seeger, he was the same way. He uh, had a writer that he loved uh, as a young man, a kid, really, who wrote about being outdoors and surviving. And there are pictures of Pete with a loincloth and a bow and arrow. That really was him. (laughs) And that was me, too. I would wear, a, you know, like Tarzan clothes and be in the woods with my bow and arrow. So we had that in common. And uh, I loved him, and I loved the way he thought, and I loved uh, the music he sang, and I liked the fact that he was independent, and it was the power of his mind and the selection of the songs that he had. He would, I would write him when I was in... Um, gee junior high school i think and started writing him when i was 12 maybe and he would write me back uh would take him a year but he was very busy but he always he always answered all his letters and one thing he said to me was that you never want to have a a set list you know Uh, you want to have idiomatic mastery so that nothing throws you, you know what to do all the time because you have so many different ways that you can go. And I remember that there was a tour he did with Arlo Guthrie, of some big places, maybe in the 70s. And Arlo had this set list, and he would do the same songs every night. And finally, Pete went nuts. You know, he said, "Take that <laughs> off your guitar. I don't, I don't like that." You know, he really usually go, He didn't usually criticize anybody. And he certainly liked Arlo, but he said he didn't like that. So it was, let's get out there and sing and see what happens next, you know. So that's my approach, and uh, I learned a lot from him. But anyway, one day, living in this very white, upper-class place and going to college, um, I saw a little advertisement for a Seeger on the Hudson singing for the Hudson River Sloop. This was about 1966. I was a sophomore in college, so I got in my car and I drove up there and I went to a place on Route 9D uh, called the Osborne Castle, and there was this replica of a boat that had been made by a bunch of uh, volunteers out of plywood, and a stage and maybe a hundred people, and there he was singing about you know the river and this and that, and I met him and started to get involved directly with him in the Hudson River Sloop in 1966. And that continued on until I got out of college. And then I, by that time, I had had numerous involvement with them playing at different things and fundraisers and whatnot, and got to know Seeger better and headed up instead of to New York City, uh, went up to... um, cold spring new york and garrison new york right where that first show had been on route 9 d and um i i was in a little house there and then seeger noticed me and started taking me with him uh to sing for people tried to introducing me to his every, anybody that he could he was very generous that way and uh, in every way actually um so the, the boat had not been built yet. This was 66, 67, 68. In 69, the boat got launched. And by that time, I was full-time up there all the time. And he asked me if I would come and sing with some other guys. And he had this little group called the Sloop Singers. And so I was part of that and um, took us around everywhere. That was what he was was taking around, a little group of singers. It was like a floating folk festival, you know, because each one would sing a song or or we'd sing together. We worked out things as we went along. We had sea shanties and so on. So, and then we got involved in the actual nuts and bolts of building this organization, which um, involved... Little concerts down by the riverside where the boat would come. And now that it was launched, it would pull up at some place where nobody ever had been before. And we'd cut our way through the undergrowth and uh, manage to get some generators in there or whatever and uh, get a, a microphone on a little stage. And people would come down. And those were the first little shows that were put on in order to, the idea was to get people to the river bank, which had been cut off by the uh, highways there. And that was a main thing that Pete was interested in, is getting people to love the river and experience the river. And again, this love of nature, which I shared with him. So this was a terrific time for me in my life.
2: Yeah and uh you know I think that uh you know by the time so I by the time so I went to college in the the mid 90s so by that point it seemed like you know the Hudson River had certainly Uh, you know, obviously it had uh, been cleaned up a lot and, uh, you know, it was just something that you could actually admire, but I was aware of the work that had been done previously to that. And uh, it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, I grew up in a a very small resort town called Greenwood Lake and uh, I know where that is. Yeah. It's on a nine mile Lake. And I know where that is. Yeah. And I would explain to my wife grew up in the suburbs in orange County, California. And I explained Uh like, Oh, my friends and I would go play in the woods and you know, they weren't allowed to leave their Uh cul-de-sac, you know? So it's a, it's a very different uh, way to look at the world world and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having that beautiful river there. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about writing to Pete Seeger when you were 12 uh, in, in putting together the notes. I realized that uh, you uh, you were a, a big admirer of a group called the Weavers. And yes. I guess you looked up Eric Darling in the phone book and you just yeah. called him and you got to know him that way. So you had, you know, it's such a different time. You had direct access. And I guess now, I guess somebody could tweet at a musician and perhaps hope that they would hear back, but uh, you just called him on the phone. That had to be uh, kind of an interesting thing to do as a kid.
1: Well, um you know my father was um passed away when I was 15 and um he was not in favor of anything that I wanted to do he was not interested in me becoming a musician that's the worst thing he could ever think of uh he wanted me to be a businessman you know and a pillar of the community and so on and um so once he passed away um Crazy notions would occur to me because my mother was not handled, did not handle that well. She was, she never did much outside of the home. And so when my father died, she was lost completely. She really didn't know what to do with herself. She had no direction in her life. He and she together, that was her whole life and me. All of a sudden, he wasn't there anymore. And she didn't know how to do anything because he did everything. So I had to grow up when I was 15, and I had to tell her what to do. And uh, so suddenly I'm – but now I'm not thinking about anybody who's going to look over my shoulder and tell me I can't do something. So one day I decided to call uh, Fred Hellerman. He was the first victim. Uh, When I was 15, I called Fred. I loved his guitar playing and I had so many questions I wanted to ask him and he was he knew I was a child you know and but he loved me and he talked very kindly to me and so after the phone call was over I was so excited that I'd spoken to him you know because I'd love him I knew his voice is so distinctive you know and his guitar playing was also distinctive and so I said, "Well, I can't call him too soon again, but maybe, maybe next month I'll call him again." You know, and <laughs> <I> waited. <laughs> so I had to wait a really long time before I would do it again. You know, each time it was, "Well, I'm overstepping my bounds." Yeah, here. of course. Uh, but he knew so much; he understood, and uh, we became real friends. And um, this, then the next happened with Eric Darling. I did the same <laughs> with him. And Eric was even better because he was really cool. He said, "Why don't you?" Now I was about 16, 16 maybe pushing 17. I was pretty good singer and guitar player at that point. And he said to me, "Why don't you come in and we'll play guitar?" I said, "Wow!" So I took the train in, and you know, I was there was no cell phones or anything. You know, yeah. I mean, you couldn't double double check that the person was going to be there. (laughs) You know what I mean? We talked on the phone. Come on Saturday. I'll see you at the house at five o'clock or three o'clock, whatever. And you went on that assumption. You know, today you'd have to check five times, you know, right before you open the door. But no, you knew. So he opened the door and there he was. And we went in and I went in and spent the afternoon playing. I asked him every question under the sun. (laughs) And he played with, we played guitars and. He had a unique banjo, a five string banjo that was on the cover of his first record called Eric Darling, which was on Electra and was hanging on a stop sign. Oh, God, I love that cover. You know, I loved him. I loved the way he looked. I loved the cover. I wanted to be that guy. You sure. know, he wasn't a folky, he wasn't a farmer or whatever. He was a cool guy with a jacket and an Oxford shirt, you know, and here was his, did a, 21 guitar, and he had his custom-made banjo. I knew how that thing sounded. Well, I ended up owning that thing, and there's a long story behind that. But I have that <laughs> banjo, and it means a hell of a lot to me to sure. have it. And so we we talked a lot and did a lot of things together. I, he then he said to me, "Well, how about being on a record? You know, you can come in. I, I was good enough to be on a record." with him, you know, he was producing yeah. a record of a, of a girl named Lisa Kindred, a blues singer. And so I went in, I had, oh my God, I, I couldn't believe it. I was, we rehearsed and everything, and then we went in and did these sessions. So in, in short, what was happening was that I was learning that by, by doing a proactive thing that I could make things happen rather than sit back and think, oh, I can't do that you know, or that would never happen. Oh, my God, I wouldn't want to do that. But by breaking through that wall, I found myself in his living room. And then Mm. I found myself in the studio with him. And so, and that's been the story of my life. You know, just moving on and making things happen that I have in my head. And the next thing I know, I'm with Seeger, and the boat's going, we're doing all this stuff. And I I followed through on it really till the mid 70s when I sort of moved in a different direction uh, from all that, but I helped them a lot and I I hope so anyway and, and loved every minute of it.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, and another thing that uh, I was seeing sort of, you know, about your formative years is that uh, uh, when, when I was a kid, I also grew up with fairly severe asthma, and I'd miss a week or two of school. And I thought it was interesting to read about how your, you would take singing lessons and, and also do a lot of swimming, but well, the singing lessons would actually help you kind of overcome it by holding out long notes. And I was kind of interested in that technique.
1: Well, that's a great question. And thank you for asking that. My Poor family. I lived in a tiny house in Larchmont Woods and it was windows were always closed. And my mother, father, sister, and grandmother, five of us, they all smoked all the time. That gave me the asthma. So they were basically killing me and killing themselves. And the doctor smoked.
2: Of course.
1: the (laughs) The doctor would never come and say, Look, and sit the four of them down and say, Look, if you want Donnie to be healthy, you're going to have to quit smoking in the house. Yeah. And yeah. that's all I got to tell you. No, instead, they took my dog away. You know, they <laughs> did everything that you know, could kill a kid. Yeah. But they, they didn't realize the, the, the awful effects to this, and especially on me. Yeah, sure. So I, would lo- I wouldn't lose two weeks. I'd lose a month. I'd lose oh, six wow. weeks. I'd get, I'd get pneumonia. Yeah. And this would happen several times a year. Uh, in the spring and in the fall and any time in the winter, you know, how that cold weather can trigger yeah. something. And there's a lot of things like that. So, um, and then I grew out of it. The, the way you grow out of it is sometimes you grow out of it and sometimes you don't. If you, you're, if it's bronchial asthma, your bronchial tubes probably are, are twitchy and too small and what happens is when you mature, they grow bigger and then they can handle it better and they don't shut everything down. But I remember, so therefore, from the time I was 15 or so on, I never had a debilitating, a debilitating attack. But I still have a problem. Today, I, I, I still get uh, tweaks in the air out here in California. There's, there's a lot of particulate matter which and a lot of sulfide coming from the salt and sea. Sometimes it'll bother me and I, I have to, do something but what i want to say to you is that it was the combination of coming into um, young adulthood and breathing better and at the same time uh learning about singing and 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 that you know and and the, the the uh working with the swimming team the brutal workouts in the sound in the summertime for about five years. And the the coach of Orienta, which won a lot of state championship uh, County championships was the coach of West point. So he was used to dealing with the finest young American men and athletes. He busted my ass every summer. I did these, these unbelievable uh, workouts and, I got healthier and healthier you know and stronger and stronger and um that led into the singing so now I realize the difference in my life because of the workout it's probably my father's doing who wanted me to get into some sort of an athletic program you know because he realized his that I had this problem and uh he couldn't even afford it but he did it and um so i can't emphasize breathing enough you know it's a a wonderful thing even though i'm out here i'll take 10 deep breaths Where i take it in as far as i can and exhale as far as i can and it will make you feel better if you do that every day 10 deep breaths outside in the fresh air it will change everything
2: no, like that, that's uh, that's some great advice. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, both of my kids are five and three, and, you know, they have some of the early signs of it. So I think that's uh, something that uh, I can try and uh, get them to do. So uh, well, thank you, you. Stay
1: away from smoking, of course, yes. and, and get them to run a little bit, get them to use it. But, you know, they're going to have um, – there's a lot of factors, you know, and it's all different. And I, I, this is my particular situation, but sure. still as an old man, you know, I breathe every day. I go out there and I feel much better. And I've always done that. And the reason I did that is that when I was swimming, there was a German guy, the father of a friend of mine, and he would swim underwater 25 yards. And I tried it. I could only get halfway and he said, well, you take 10 deep breaths every day and come back in a week and you'll do it. And by God, he was right. He was right.
2: Well, um Look, I could uh, talk about uh, all this stuff for a while, but sure. I know that uh, you have a busy day, and uh, yeah. you know you're sure. talking to a lot of people. But I Those wanted are good to
1: questions though a very good question. Well,
2: thank you. Uh, I uh, yeah. this, this is all the stuff that uh, I was interested in when I was reading about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, I want to talk about uh, American Pie, and sure. usually when I talk to a musician who has you know, not that you don't have tremendous success, but it is of course the song that you're most identified with. Yes. Is there a point in your career where you see it as, yes, this opened a lot of doors, but it is a little bit more of a mixed blessing where you're like, oh, I don't know. I wish, I wish that it wasn't like Don McLean, you know, the American Pie guy. And, uh, you know, like I said, plenty of other successes. I've talked to some musicians and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And did you ever think like, well, what if I play American Pie first? a concert and then the people who just came for it then then i don't have to worry about them you know hanging around and and yelling it out you know i don't i don't
1: see any of that that way Um, i know i probably should (laughs) but um i was a millionaire in 1971 and that allowed me to do so much for my mother and for the family i had then and for myself and it's continued on i have been you know, fabulously successful all around the world with albums that every album I ever put out was gold or platinum in Australia. Uh, Best ofs were number one in Europe and England and many gold albums over there. Less of that kind of massive success in the United States, but I had a world success that was amazing and still have it. And so You know, that's the hand I was dealt. And I was dealt this song that really is not like any other hit song that ever was. So it would be one thing if it was just um, some song that everybody wanted to hear all the time. But it's another thing if it's American Pie. Because it's not like anything that ever was and not like anything that ever will be. So it's something that you have to accommodate in a way, rather than say, well,
2: gee, I wish this or I wish that. I'm glad it all happened like it did. Sure. Yeah, no, no. And that, that absolutely makes sense. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny cause you're talking about Arlo Guthrie before, and you have to figure when he's putting together that set list every night, it's like, well, I have to keep, you know, what, 25 minutes for Alice's restaurant, you know? So well, <laughs> to have, to have eight and a half minutes I mean, for American pie, at least has a little bit more I mean, flexibility. Well, but even, even,
1: even that, can the Rolling Stones, one of the biggest groups ever, get through a show without satisfaction?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: They can't. So they are not on the level of the Beatles in that sense because there's no song the Beatles had to play. Yeah. And so we're all in the same bag in a sense, you know. There's <laughs> sure. that one that the people have to hear. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'm not likening myself to that in any way, but I have no sure but I have albums many many albums that have sold very very well and that everybody knows most of the songs on those albums from the 1970s so that's uh you know you know most of the time a career was like 7 years yeah you know here I am 50 years later <laughs> right and I'm coming out with a new album and I've got one going now with the still playing favorites and uh so you know, I just can't look a gift horse in the mouth.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've always been impressed at how you've largely left other people's interpretations of what the song means. You've kind of just left it stay out there, you know? And I think that I can appreciate that because a lot of times when, whether it's a, it's a songwriter or a filmmaker, when they say, well, here's what it means. A lot of times you're like, well, that's not what it meant to me. Yeah. Right. You know?
1: Well, one of the things that I'm doing, which is why I'm participating in this 50th anniversary uh, extravaganza about the song and the album American Pie is because I have eyes on building the trademark of American Pie. Normally, if this if I were in a in a mindset such as you just referenced where I was trying to downplay it, and upplay other things. I wouldn't do that, but I don't. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to build American Pie into a brand that is on a lot of stuff. I have trademarked that years ago, and now, and since this pandemic, there has been a devotion to doing this. I have this website, Don McLean YouTube website. We're looking at whiskey deals and merchandising deals and all sorts of other things, using American Pie and taking it away from the song and yeah. using it as a trademark on many other things. So this is what I'm doing with the remainder of my life is is messing around with this, and I'm loving it. It's very creative. We're doing this um, documentary movie, this children's book, which is going to morph into other things, uh, with this Broadway thing, which will have a lot of my songs in it, which will be probably three years from now, but we're talking about it now because, but it will happen because we've got contracts to do all this stuff and I've had been paid money. So people have got skin in the game here. Um, But so that's why I'm doing that. I I am embracing this fully at this moment because of the, the trademark aspects of this, which are going to come down the road and um that's why i allowed this young acapella group um to um do uh, another version of the song which is an acapella version
2: yeah so, that's what i was I ask- gonna ask you about because uh i believe they're called home free and they have home this free. yeah, yeah right. and they have this acapella version which uh is great it's just it's a different uh take on it but uh it, you know i mean there have been other interpretations of the song over the years i mean you know not obviously- too many but, uh, but Madonna you know, was the big one. Madonna's the big one, and you know the interesting thing was that when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you, I had multiple people that wanted me to ask you about. There's the Weird Al Yankovic song that yeah, is not a cover of American Pie, of course, but it takes the you know and and he applies what is this you know really epic heartfelt song and he applies it to something silly like star wars and he tells a star wars story so w- were you at all apprehensive about like oh he's taking my song and making it so silly or is that no, no. kind of the fun of it
1: i am totally a fun guy i love all this stuff and not only that but there are many many other um parodies of american pie that are brilliant uh the day the nasdaq died the day <laughs> democracy died the sure. day uh, Collusion died when the Mueller report didn't find the collusion. <laughs> right. Eight verses of this. Brilliant. And I'm amazed at the creativity of people that come up with this stuff. No, um, Al is a terrific guy and yeah. he did a great job with that. And it's one, but you see the great thing about it is that I own it. If you hear that version of, of, of Weird Al singing that song from a publishing aspect that's the same as if I were singing American Pie. Oh, okay, yeah. That's, so uh... these are all versions of American Pie that get out there and explode this copyright. Yeah. So when, when Madonna sings that song, it's as if I'm singing the song.
2: Well, not to get so bogged down into copyright law, and I know I only have a couple more minutes with you, but did you own the phrase American Pie when they made those teenage comedies called American Pie? Or does yeah, that? I, tra-
1: I trademarked that phrase back in 1986. Wow. Uh, that <laughs> phrase, starry, starry night, my name, the day the music died, and bye-bye, Miss American Pie. So they um, basically tried to flick me off and go ahead with the movie, but they did acknowledge the fact, you know, there's such a thing as a secondary um, connection to something. Sure, yeah. And uh Don McLean and American Pie are very connected. So I would have a, a case against them uh, that somehow I had encouraged or approved of uh, these movies. And they knew that, but they weren't letting me know that. Anyway, I hired a very powerful lawyer in Los Angeles, and made a, I'm still getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from them uh, with each new movie they release to video or whatever. Yeah.
2: And they've done, they've done a number of those directly to oh, video. Oh, yeah, they've like, all
1: paid yeah. off like a <laughs> slot <laughs> machine. Well, honestly, well, that's, like, that's, like that's what business. I like to
2: hear, though. I, I, I love the fact that uh, they had to pay you you know, for using that phrase.
1: Well, it was kind of nerve-wracking um, because they can also turn around and sue you. Um, But, you know, so you've got to be willing to uh, to take the heat. But I have had many, many I I am proud to say and I'm not a litigious person. I have had a lot of success in court (laughs) against a lot of big people. And therefore, the result of that is that I own all my songs. I own all the publishing, on all my songs, and I own most of the masters that I've recorded. And if I don't own them, I control them for example, nobody can do anything with the American Pie Master unless I say they can.
2: Which is, uh, which, you know, so many musicians don't have that luxury. You'll hear about, you know, so many bands will actually re-record their best known songs because they don't have those masters. And, you know, they'll they'll try and sell the re-records to like commercials and stuff. No, 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 don't buy the original version, buy this one. So, Uh, You know, and look, and I I think that I don't know how many of your contemporaries in the early 70s had this good business sense. But from the way that you hear these stories, you know, now most of them didn't. So, uh, well, I
1: was managed by somebody who was trying to lead me in the wrong direction a lot of the time. But I did go to school for finance and for business and I can read a contract. Sure. And I got a degree in this. I have a BBA degree. And so I can read stuff. I know what's going on. You know what's amazing is like people out there would be really amazed to know that the Beatles were on a 3% deal with EMI Records. EMI Records made 97% of the money. Wow. They made 3%. That was the industry standard in the UK. You imagine those cheap Brits, you know, (laughs) taking advantage of every act they had. 3%. I'm on a, still on a 10% with uh, United Artists and capital and all that. <clears throat> but on albums, you know well I own the albums sure but it'll be twenty twenty five percent now, you know but the you tell Paul McCartney, I mean I guess they renegotiated uh, something, but it's they really have you and the publishing and the thing about it is the old record business was wonderful for them because oh, for the them, artists yeah. would the artist would pay, would pay to make the, the, the record. So he'd, they'd front you uh, 50 grand to make your album. You'd make the album. They'd own the album. And you would have to pay the 50 grand back to them at a rate of 3%. All right? And then, right. then you'd get paid your artist royalty. But they'd still own the record.
2: Yeah, of course.
1: You weren't buying the record back. You were just getting square with them yeah. so that they would give you a royalty payment from that point forward. So it's unbelievable. Yeah.
2: Well, it's fascinating. And yeah. uh, you know, because you know, as weird as it was when Prince changed his name to a symbol, when uh, years later they explained that they did that because he hated his contract so much and he didn't want to put himself out as Prince. You're like, Oh, actually it's brilliant. It seemed obnoxious and weird, but you're like, no, no, no. He just wanted to, he just wanted to have some of his money. Well, uh, I mean,
1: it shows you how much people go through. I mean, Look at John Fogarty, look at um, uh, Bob Dylan, who was yeah. in court for years with his manager uh, and the, 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 the trouble that they can put you through. Um, <laughs> you know, I had this manager, he sued me, I kicked his ass, you know, in, in two years, he was out. And I've never Uh, had anybody suing me or messing with me or sending me these kinds of. It it messes you up, you know.
2: Yeah, I love that. Um, Don, (laughs) do you have another uh, interview that you need to get to right now, or do you have a couple more minutes? I don't want to keep you any longer.
1: I have a couple more minutes. Okay,
2: great. So um, I do want to, I want to circle back to uh, American pie because obviously there's the aspect of it that isn't really up for interpretation. You know, the day the music died obviously being the day that's coming up a couple days from Mm -hmm. today when you and I are talking, you know, this really, this, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously it's before even, you know, the Kennedy assassination. So it's this huge tragedy that uh, you know somebody like me looks back on but to think about how you know that happened it was February 3rd 1959 and you know today's February 1st that we're talking Uh, Buddy Holly was only 22 Richie Valens was 17 and you know Big Bob was 28 and the pilot his name was Roger Peterson you know he doesn't usually get mentioned but so these four people who died and it's such a sad thing is it do you sit down and think like, Oh, I want to write a song about that. Or are you writing a bigger song where you're like, well, I, I feel like this lends itself to this narrative that I'm telling, or does, me, is, is that me, day the, the starting point?
1: Let me just put you uh, in the proper context. Sure. Um, John Goldrosen wrote a book called the buddy Holly story before American pie. He could not get that book published. Nobody cared about Buddy Holly. Oh, I see. Okay. After that song came out, he published the book and wrote me a letter and said, I wanted you to know, uh, Don, and it's published in the book about me called uh, Killing Us Softly with His Songs by Alan Howard. I wanted you to know that you, had you not put out American Pie, no one would ever have put this book out. He let me know that because he had a struggle trying to get that out, and it was finally a publisher put it out. Yeah. So that book then formed the basis for the Buddy Holly story, the movie. And Gary Busey and the producer of the Buddy Holly story came to my dressing room when the movie was was hot, and they came in and shook hands and sat down, and they didn't beat around the bush. Gary said to me don we came here to tell you that this movie would never have been made if it hadn't been for american pie wow i so you you don't realize how little anybody cared about this except probably john lennon and paul mccartney and 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 the the english guys who adored buddy holly and never forgot him for a minute but he was off the charts out of the minds of americans wow. <clears throat> that's for sure um my story is a long one and i'm not going to could take up too much time to tell you but <clears throat> I was constantly among many 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 things I, I am going in a lot of directions at once I always remembered that I always thought about it and um <clears throat> always felt bad physically you know emotionally about it because you spent so much time looking at those album covers that you know the. The buddy Holly story with the black glasses and yeah. that look on his face, frozen you know, and hearing these beautiful songs, and then the crickets you know the chirping crickets, the five of them you know looking into the sun with their guitars and hearing those guitars on the record and this was the power of vinyl records when there was no other, no other alternative we weren't confused with five hundred t v stations and five hundred <laughs> radio stations. Sure all kinds of dreck and bloviating bullshit uh it was focused and i came in luckily at the very end of this vinyl there were three main stations that played top 40 in new york i was number one all over the world i know what that feels like that's like being as that's like being albert it's like being rudolph valentino in the silent era <laughs> right that's sure. what it's like
2: <clears throat> yeah well, and you know obviously the the fact that the the song was number one, I alluded it to I alluded to it in the intro, the fact that an eight and a half minute song was ever a number one. and early in the process, did you have any, you know, record company geniuses trying to tell you? Cause you know, look, you have songs that had been singles, like, and it got Davida and "Light my fire, but those lent themselves to making a shorter version. It's not like you can take something out of this, but did somebody say, how about doing a three and a half minute version of no, it? No, they Don?
1: didn't. They didn't. I was always in the woods. I didn't talk to people. <laughs> That's very uh, smart. <laughs> I, I really didn't. I still don't, you know, uh, they just made a single, you know, they put two verses and a lot of chorus on there and it went to number one. And then they put out the single and had part one and part two. And then everybody wanted to hear the whole thing. So they bought the album and sold millions of albums. And then the disc jockeys had to have the album in the, uh, in the booth because they had to play a, an album track in order to satisfy people in the top 10, to hear the full version of the song. So it's a whole thing about technology and, uh, and that, but it was funny. And uh the song was always getting paid twice. It got paid twice when you played it in the jukebox. It got played twice and you played it on the air. It was a like having two hit songs at the same time. <clears throat> but actually, uh, in in retrospect now, because it's it keeps growing, it's like having ten little hit songs or more. Yeah. You know <laughs> of an act of forgettable hits. You know what I mean. It's even sure, more than that. It's a huge basket of hits yeah. for somebody that would maybe play off of those for 20 years. American Pie just eats those up and, you know, just, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you mentioned that there are, you know, there haven't been that many versions of the song. So there is this new version by this yeah. band uh, home free, which I yes. guess you're not really a band when you don't have instruments, I guess they're a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how does that come about? Do they come to you and yes. say, Hey, we want to do this. And yeah. Uh, I assume they're not the first per- the first you know group that's ever come to you and wanted to do it. But uh, what was it about this that you thought, yeah, um, this is a great idea?
1: Well, my manager Kurt Webster knows them, and they know her man, the manager, and they they came to him and said, and actually, I think Kurt said, well, how about doing American Pie? And they said, oh, that's interesting, that's exciting. You know, that's a challenge because it's eight and a half minutes. Um, it's just so it's a little bit. Man, they did a great arrangement, and they did the whole thing. So it's been a fun experience.
2: Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And just a, a, a two more things that tie into each other. Uh, I, I was fascinated reading about, I guess in the late seventies, you did a collaboration with, uh, you worked with Elvis's backing singers uh, and also a lot of his old musicians. And that resulted in the album, Chain Lightning. Uh, talk and about believe, somebody, and hey, so. obviously- also- yeah, a, obviously, somebody growing up in the in the 50s, getting to work with Elvis's musicians must have, one, been a thrill, but it's also like, you know, getting to work with people that are at <clears> the <throat> peak of their, you know, their creative powers.
1: Well, it's more than that. Um, I would sit with my grandmother and listen to Elvis when I was 11, and she would talk about those wonderful Jordanaires that sang in the background, you know, and I grew up with it. And here I was. I didn't know they were there. I didn't know what I was facing when I went to work with Larry Butler. There they were, but I didn't know I'd be working with them. And we cut uh, four hit records. You know, we had yeah. we had. Since I don't have you, we had a cha- "Crying," we had "Castles in the Air," and we had um, one other one, maybe three hit records.
2: Yeah. Well, and but, of course the interesting thing about your arrangement of Since I Can't Have You is the one that inspired the Guns N' Roses version, you know, which is you know I didn't all, know that. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. That it, it's it, it's very similar. It's more similar to yours, you know. Well, uh, Since yeah. I Don't Have You is the
1: best record I ever made. Yeah. That in my opinion, if it's the best single I ever made in my life. I just love it. And Crying is second to that. And Larry Butler did that. He's deceased now. Wonderful, wonderful
2: uh, a producer uh, who made a lot of hit records. A real genius. Well, and, and Crying I wanted to uh, talk to you about uh, because obviously it's, it's your interpretation of the Roy Orbison song. And I'm aware of Roy Orbison because he had this sort of late 80s resurgence. You know, he had a single called uh, uh, You Got It. He was, yeah. in, he was mm-hmm. in The He uh, was in the David Lynch movie, Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. And sort of he had this great one last kind of, you know, yeah. hurrah at the end of his life. Yeah. Do you feel like Roy Orbison gets the credit he deserves for, you know, the influence and just his ability? Because let's be honest, he didn't look like Elvis Presley. You know, so uh, he 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 didn't have that level of success. So I do wonder if he didn't get the credit that maybe he deserved.
1: Well, Roy Orbison's music um, is always going to be on an, from another planet, and even his name—it sounds like orbit. You know, <laughs> it, it absolutely like does. Yeah. He always <laughs> looked like he came from another planet. Yeah, you know, Elvis was a country boy. Or Roy was. Yeah, no. Roy was like a, from another planet, and <laughs> um, crying. You know, his version was almost like a rumba. You know, yeah. it was I was all right, but dum, dum dum for a while, dum dum dum, kind of happy sad. You know, but I made it. I was all right. Mm, doo, 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 doo. I had this vision in my head of how I wanted to do this because I'm an interpreter of the American songbook. And in this case, I knew what I wanted to do with that song. When we, I knew him. I met him several times. My impression of him was that he was a, one of these deep American geniuses. Who was also very funny, but he never talked on stage, never spoke. But he was wonderful, very funny. And so... Um, I don't think Eddie Cochran's gotten the, the respect he deserves. Sure. You know, way more than Roy. Roy had a a front and center career, but he did he dipped a lot in the '60s, late '60s and '70s. He was very sick. He had open heart surgery when he was in his '40s, yeah. and so he was doing a lot of uh, working men's clubs in the UK, and his band would have to be two in a room and all that stuff. You know, cheap kind of tours. And Johnny Cash was doing great. They were best friends. But uh, Roy, I think that in many areas, I have been given credit, and I, I hope this is true, that crying actually opened the door for his... It was a foreshadowing of his return. If you yeah. that, you that, know, you'll find that out, that um, suddenly I was number two or number one all over the world, and Roy was suddenly coming back
2: yeah and and after you know your version of crying comes out i don't know it's within a a year or a couple years there's the van halen version of pretty woman you know so it's uh roy
1: roy is as is important to my history as buddy holly is really we're connected in that way because i they came with my musical journey of some sort i don't know what i'm doing Yeah, i have no plans I I never planned anything. I I just go with my instincts and stuff happens. And that's been the story of my life. There's never been a plan. I don't have a John Landau or a Columbia Records or some mastermind, you know, who's, I don't have that.
2: No, but what you do have is your publishing and your masters. So that's better than having (laughs) a lot of that. That's right. And Uh, I have...
1: And I have four homes on two coasts. So
2: hey, you can't you can't go <laughs> wrong there. I'm going to squeeze in one last thing because I love the sure. story about how uh, you know, obviously, you've you your music inspired uh, plenty of people. I love the story though of how your song "Empty Chairs" inspired what ultimately became the Roberta Flack song "Killing Me Softly," mm-hmm. and. Uh, I guess it was just as simple as I guess the the person who wrote the words to it. Her name was Lori Liebman. I think I have her name right. Lieberman. Lieberman. Mm-hmm. And so she saw you uh, perform, and I saw you. I saw a clip where you're explaining it. You're talking about playing at the Troubadour here in Los Angeles, and what a terrible place it was to play. Yeah, awful. <laughs> awful. It's it's awful. not much better now. I, I haven't. Awful. I, <laughs> but you can get really close to the stage, which might not yeah. be great for the performer, but it's yeah, great really for the music close. fan. <laughs>
1: really close uh no it was a, it was a happening place back in those days you know sure. there'd be all sorts of uh, heavy duty english drunk actors out in the front like richard harris you know and uh, <laughs> uh, always you know they're always too good for america you know yeah and they come here and say, well, as Hamlet would say, you know, they're drinking wow. and, you know well they are there
2: look he drank so much we all knew why he left the cake out in the rain you know
1: <laughs> i don't get that one when he why he left what, what?
2: That's all right. All right, (laughs) I thought Uh, it seemed funny in my head. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, anyway, I remember all those days. Everybody coming in, doing sets. Blah blah blah. It was a happening place, and um, I hated it. I was stuck there with a contract. I had to play there for several years, twice a year. And um, but to my credit, I always gave my all. And uh, that one day, she was there. Loved the song, "Empty Chairs," and went and wrote this poem but her singers, her songwriter managers there's a conflict right there yeah of 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 Charles Fox and Norman and Gimbel Norman Gimble and Charles Fox were her managers and her songwriters for a project right and they he Norman Gimbel took her diary and never returned it and then went and wrote some songs but used all sorts of phrases and Things from wow. her diary and never gave her any credit, and then split from her and sued her. Wow! And twenty years later, thirty years later, forty—I don't know how many years—he comes after me, and tells me how come you're pretending that you know you're involved in my song "Killing Me Softly." So I'm thinking this guy's off his medication. Yeah, he's got to be ninety. So I call <laughs> up my man in England, who's the keeper of my my records i say isn't there a news story where lieberman gimbal and fox are all in the same room and talking about how the song was created and they and that's and that is the story that is the real story and my man produces this patricia o'hare story from the daily news and sure enough there they all are so we sent that from my lawyer back to his lawyer basically said get lost okay a mean guy and he also went after her tried to bully her around and he did bully her around he took her ideas for the song he sued her he made her stay away from any kind of creativity for several years because of this lawsuit and they were like you know having a thing so i don't know the guy that's a it's more to the story that meets the eye, but I've gotten the truth out there.
2: No. Yeah. I didn't realize obviously all the, the, the terrible parts for her, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I love the idea that she was inspired by your yeah. performance and, you know, she's and the then nicest
1: it, person you could ever meet. Yeah. You should, and you should interview her sometime. I know. I,
2: I, I think I, I am very interested in talking to her and the, the clip that I found of you, you're she's in the audience and you're talking to her. I, I don't quite yeah. remember. Oh
1: yeah. That's, it's some weird gig I did in Los Angeles for some, um, Cult leader, who's actually some kind of oh, that's another story. I
2: can't even. <laughs> that, that's that. That sounds like another story. But you know oh, what? It, it, that's the thing about Los Angeles. It's hard to tell who who's the cult leader <laughs> yeah. and who's just the celebrity. You and know, who's it's, the cult. <laughs> yeah. Well, Don, uh, I could talk to you for another hour, but sure. uh, I don't want to take up your whole day. And I really appreciate okay. you taking okay. the time. Very if people want to keep track of everything that's going on, uh, obviously not a lot of live gigs uh, in 2020, but uh, hopefully yeah. uh, you can get back out there soon. Just go to. Don McLean.com. I suppose that's the one-stop shop for everything.
1: Yeah. YouTube, you Don McLean, YouTube will take you right to my channel too.
2: Great. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it was uh, wonderful to just get to chat with you and uh, well,
1: really good questions. And glad you went to Marist. You turned out to be a good boy <laughs> well, with a good mind. And I like that. You know, there's, there's
2: not a lot of, uh, of, of uh, people who went to Marist uh, who, you know, uh, unfortunately, we have a, a very short list of uh, distinguished alumni. Uh, Rick Smith's the basketball player. And uh, Bill O'Reilly went to uh, Marist College. So, you know. Bill O'Reilly,
1: Bill. Well, Bill O'Reilly's I, smart. But it's a great school, though. It's a great yeah. school. John Platania, my
2: guitarist, went there.
1: Oh, great. Yep. You played with Van Morrison. He's got his degree also in English. Very bright man.
2: Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Well, you know what? That was really a lot of fun. That was a great conversation with the great Don McLean. And uh, it was so much fun to talk to him. It's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Only partially because he said I asked him really good questions uh, multiple times. Look, there's interviews that uh, I've been uh, super prepared for and kind of known where they were going to go and uh, people I've just been thrilled to talk to, but uh, this was one I did some research ahead of time and uh, was pleasantly surprised by some of the information that was shared and had a great conversation, which I try not to toot my horn too much here on the show, but I really feel like that was uh, the way that I personally like interviews to go, where it's just really a conversation. And I really hope that each and every one of you listening to this version of it enjoyed it. There is a video version of it on the Blackcast YouTube page, as there is for so many of our conversations that you hear the audio here on the Blackcast. Just go to B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T on YouTube. And like the BlackCast on Facebook, follow at BlackCast on Twitter, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And for your easy one-stop shopping, just go to BlackCast.com. I appreciate Don McLean for not just giving me his time, basically going into overtime for what ended up being 20 more minutes than what I had been told that I was going to get with him. So it was really fun. Really hope you liked it. Let us know what you think. You can write to me directly on Twitter at Christian DMZ. Uh, that is all the time we have for this week. We will leave you with a little of this great new home free version of American Pie. Obviously, we have to leave you with a little of it because we're not going to leave you with eight and a half minutes. But if there was ever a show. That would have an eight and a half minute theme song why that would be the black cast but uh we'll just settle for our fantastic one minute 45 second theme song we'll listening to black cast which you have been doing and uh, hopefully you're listening to us next time but for now we're listening to home free
1: did you write the book of love and do you have faith in god above if the bible tells you so your mortal soul and can you teach me how to dance real slow well I know that you're in love with him cause I saw you dancing in the gym you both kicked off your shoes man
0: The pink carnation and a pickup
1: truck But I knew I was out of luck the day the, day, the, the day the music died I started singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie do told me Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry Them good old boys Are drinking whiskey and rye I'm Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die